So our text for today is Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But I'll begin by reading 1 through 6, so we cover what we had last week and then um, move into our message for today. Ephesians 4, starting in chapter, uh, chapter or verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as you might imagine today, our, our focus is going to be on the number one, this singularity, and uh, it's not hard to have unity when there's only one thing. If you only have one, you're pretty well together. It's when we have uh, many things that come together that we struggle with unity. Um, beginning with the, the, the first, there is one body. And we'll have seven things that we'll go through today. Seven uh, pieces of unity that are all wrapped up in the Trinity, as we'll see uh, as we move along. But the first one of those things is we have one body, namely the church. Paul is admonishing the Ephesians that, that yes, there is... Ephesus and there's Corinth and, and there's Rome and there is Jerusalem. There are all these places, but we have one church. We have one body. And it's easy for us to think of ourselves in that way. It's easy for this group to say, well, yeah, we're one. We have familial ties. We have long-term friendships. We also rally around similar theological positions, so it's easy for us to come together and have unity. It's easier for us to come together and to have unity, but it's harder for us to see ourselves as one body with other believers sometimes. Um, I kind of went down a, a, a Reddit rabbit hole yesterday on the, the Reform subreddit, and, and I found something really interesting where it was... It was a discussion about a guy was a Reformed Baptist and he moved to an area that didn't have a Reformed Baptist church, so he went to a PCA church, Presbyterian Church of America. Um, not to be confused with PCUSA, that's a completely different thing, but he went to a PCA church, and it's, it's a, a very Reformed church, and what he he was he was going to go, but he wanted to know, you know, what is my expectation? Am I going to be accepted? Is it going to be weird for me to be there? Is it going to be weird for them because we have some theological differences? Although I would say we probably are more similar to the PCA than most other groups. Um, and a really long, thoughtful post by a guy who is an elder in a PCA church and says, you know, typically a PCA church will allow Reformed Baptists with a, the Credo Baptist theology to be members of a PCA church, which if, if you don't know, the, the, um, the Presbyterian Church of America, they, they baptize, they believe in infant baptism or paedo-baptism. So 
I thought that was interesting. Said we even allow those brothers and sisters to participate in communion. Now you can't be an elder, you can't hold a position of ministry authority, but you can be a part of the body. And I thought that was very interesting because in, in one point it seemed kind of gracious because of the differences. We've made allowances, but it's also, I thought it was very interesting because we have the lines very clearly drawn. This is, this is what's cool. This is not cool. You can do this and you can't do that. And it's, we, we have very clearly made the, the distinctions or the div divisions. Um, we've drawn those lines, but sometimes it's harder for us to rally around where, where we have similarities. It's more difficult for us to say what we believe that is similar. But I think we would probably agree that we can think of things that we disagree with with a lot of people that we would consider to be other brothers and sisters. And those things, it's okay for us to have disagreements. It's okay for us to have differences. It, within this room, there are theological differences. That's going to be the case. But it's, it's not okay for us to divide in the sense that we no longer consider one another to be of one body. Do we think about that? And we talked last week about meeting somebody from a different country or how in, in Africa and then in this moment right now in Ghana, there are, are Christians meeting that worship very differently from us. They look different than we do. They, they have different lives than we do. They have different cultural experience than we do. They raise their children differently than we do. And they worship differently than we do. Yet they're one church. We are one church. Um, being in this, this passage for the last two weeks, I've thought a lot about the ramifications of a body, the body of Christ being divided. And I'll, I'll try to touch on some of the things that I, that I've thought about as I have seen things in scripture. But one of the things that, that I, questions that I have been asking and thinking about is, how ineffective does it make us for the gospel collectively when we are divided? And I'll talk in a little bit about what those divisions are. I'm not talking about first ordered things. I'm not talking about, well, you can believe whatever you believe about um, how you're saved. You can believe whatever you want, you know, Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, it's all the same. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about secondary issues, but more more on that in a minute. One thing I'd like to do is uh, I'd like to read for you from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And this sort of framed my, my thinking on uh, this first section where we're talking about one church, one spirit. For in one spirit we were all baptized into the body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So apart from being one body, there is one body and there is one spirit. For in one spirit we were all baptized into the body. 
And this isn't discussing a physical immersion. doesn't mean we're all baptized in the same way. We were immersed or sprinkled. This is talking about partaking in the Spirit of God and being part of the church, being part of the one body, being brought into the kingdom of God. And we have to understand that we aren't part of one body because of our agreements or because of our interests. We are united by one spirit. And and I know that seems kind of uh, pedestrian to say that, well, yes, Christians are, are united by one spirit. But what I, I want to make sure that we don't gloss over and, and the point that I want to make um, is that it is not our doing that gives us unity. Now, we can do. We can do things. And, and we talked last week about how we ought to be eager, right? We ought to be eager to have unity. But all of our unity is initiated, it is advanced, and it is sustained by God. He's doing much to establish this unity that he desires, so much so that sometimes we feel like we're responsible. It is, if you stop and think about the group of people that we have here, it's, it's crazy. Chad and I talk about how we're about a year apart in age. We grew up about 20 minutes apart, ran in a lot of the same circles. We know a lot of the same people, but we didn't really know each other until a few years back. How is that possible? Well, that unity uh, was was being established by God, and at the right time it came together, and, and we, we knew one another. How is it that I have brothers and sisters from New Jersey? Don't think I've ever been to New Jersey, literally, unless, unless we did when we went to New York. And if we did, it was probably an accident. We got on the wrong bridge or something. I had never been to New Jersey. But I have brothers and sisters. And that... So God has initiated this unity, God advanced this unity, and God sustains it. So the thing that I kept thinking about this week is, yes, I'm not responsible for, for making those things happen. I, don't, I, didn't know, I didn't know whom Nathan was going to marry. I didn't know that. God did that. I didn't know who my children were going to be. God did that. I didn't know who was going to be a part of my church, the church I belong to, in 2023. God did that. So I, I don't want to take that responsibility to say that, that you know I have unity in my life because I established all those things, but we are responsible for it. Um, if we look at the text, just as... Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So we talked about being called. This is, this is God drawing us into something. God is drawing us to do something. Who made that call? God made that call. It's, it's generally a call to salvation and specifically in, in Paul's letter, it's a call to unity in the body of believers. And what are we called to? To one hope. And what is our hope? We can look back um, for several weeks back in Ephesians. 
Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. <clears throat> In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So our hope, our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the, the Lord, as Dale said, the second advent for the return. That's what our hope is in. Our hope is in the fact that this is not the only life we'll have. This is not your best life now. This is, this is the hope. This life is preparing us for the hope that is to come. And that hope is in Christ. So we have an inheritance we were called to. If we have a shared inheritance, that makes us brothers and sisters. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. So this is the, the Spirit is working unity into our lives. The Spirit is working into us to, to draw us together to use us according to God's purposes. And we have the same spirit. The spirit that calls us to unity is the spirit that made us alive. Um, uh, back a couple more weeks, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and I'll read it's a lengthy section, but it's very appropriate to what we're talking about today. Ephesians 2, 1 through 20. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are one body. We are made one body by one spirit. We have one hope one inheritance, and that hope, namely, is Christ Jesus. And if you, if you go back and you read through Ephesians 2, again, the part that I just read, the word that's repeated over and over again is we. We. We were dead in our trespasses. 
made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Him, seated us on heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show immeasurable riches in His grace and kindness in us, in Christ Jesus. So we, as Christians, as the redeemed of God, we are knitted together. We have the same call, we have the same purpose, and we have the same Lord. And that's what we'll look at, look at next. We have one Lord, one Lord together. Um, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There are seven. I'll go through them again at the end. But we have unity in one Savior. John 14, 6, uh, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Spirit is the only way to Christ, and Christ Jesus is the only way to the Father. So if we are one body, in one spirit, then we are in Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. The Spirit is the only way to Christ. So some of the, the issue that Paul was specifically addressing was built-in prejudices, built-in disagreements that were between Jew and Gentile, and Dale enumerated those really well several weeks back when he, when he talked about how they viewed one another. But God is disregarding those things. Those things that separate us are being pushed aside, and we are being brought together because why? There is no distinction. God doesn't make distinction between Jew and Greek. Romans 10, 12 for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call to him. So it doesn't matter where geographically, it doesn't matter how a person looks, it doesn't matter what their social economic status is. We are all saved by the same Jesus. The sins of our brothers and sisters, other places in the world, are covered by the same blood. And in this, in this passage, Paul is making the point that Jews and Gentiles are the same. Um, and the, and it's, it's the larger point of this passage, right? This is, this is kind of the thing that Paul is trying to drive home. He's trying to instill unity in Ephesus because there is obviously some disunity. Typically when we see Paul address an issue, it's because an issue exists. Uh, sometimes it's, it's theology. Sometimes he's teaching. Sometimes, But it almost always applies to the specific group that he is speaking to. But it applies to us as well. We have a different set of circumstances. Um, but we also, in, I think in our minds, we limit... Who has access to God? We do that in how we decide who we will share the gospel with. We pre-qualify people. 
we prejudge people. And a lot of times it's because we maybe we don't feel adequate or or we don't feel like we're able to share the gospel in a way that will save someone. And you're absolutely right. You cannot save anyone. No one in here will ever save anyone. But everyone in here can present the gospel. And it's not your eloquence. It's not the power of your words. It's not your the force of your personality, how well you are able to speak to people. It's the truth of God that saves people. So that's our, our calling is to, is to take the that to people. But what we need to think about is in, in terms of us, we don't have a, a Jew and a Greek problem in, in our church in this country so much as we have a, a different problem. We have that group believes differently than us. They listen to different music. They, they have their chairs arranged differently. They use different lighting. The version of Bible they use is different than what we use. And we, we can very quickly and very easily draw lines of distinction. But do we extend the same understanding to those people that Paul's intending his audience to extend to one another? Meaning that, do we think about um, those lines? And I'm, and again, I'm not talking about Christian cults, of which there are many. Uh, there are many in this town. Um, but I'm talking about people of other denominations who agree on first order doctrines. How do we feel about them? We, how do we feel about cooperating with them? How do we feel about praying for them? This is a, a, a weird idea, so bear with me. But if we were to have, if we were to assemble a council of dead Christians in a room and we had Spurgeon, if we had Augustine, if we had Calvin and Wesley, if we had John Knox, if we had Owen, Edwards, if we had all these people in a room together and we presented them with our church covenant, and we want them to review it and critique it and give us some ideas about things that, that maybe we need to improve, how likely do you think it would be that they would unanimously agree on anything? It's probably not very likely. If you look at, at these people, and anyone who would want to read any of these people who would come to me and say, well, what do you think about uh, me reading John Knox? Like anything, it's not the Bible. Read it with discernment, but it's good. There's good material there. If someone said, I want to read John Wesley, Arminian guy, mm, I would say read with discernment because it's very good. He was a godly man. He would probably worship with us if he were here today. But there are distinctions. There are disagreements. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be among even that group of people that we sort of revere as, as spiritual people, people who've written and, and preached and did a lot of things that are beneficial to us. There's a, there would be a lot of disagreement, disagreement and dis, dissension among them. But they are united in one spirit. They are united in one Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 
Yet there is for a, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we have the we have the Spirit and we have Christ mingled together. We have God and we have Christ tied together. So let's look at at Paul's exhortation that we have one Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then in verse 6, one God and Father of all. Now, that may be an easier thing for us to imagine. I remember one time in in an interview with uh, uh, George Bush, 43, someone asked him if, he thought that uh, the the God of Judaism, Jew, the Jewish God, and the Christian God were the same God. Can you imagine being put on, on the spot like that in front of millions of people? Um, and his assertion was, it's the same God. And then he was posed the same question about the God of the Muslim faith. That's a lot harder question. I don't remember how he answered that because I was still thinking about the first thing that he'd said. But we have, there is one God, that, and Paul, he has used the, the Trinity to explain to the Ephesians the type of unity and the way that we ought to have unity, why we can have it. And lastly, he references God the Father. And I know that the doctrine of the Trinity can be difficult to grasp, especially for younger Christians, but not only for younger Christians. For us older Christians, it's a mysterious thing, and it's, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand that. Um, other religions say we have three gods. If you talk to, to people of other faiths, they would, they would say that. And while the term Trinity isn't in the biblical text, the theology of the Trinity is found throughout all the Bible. Um, it can be a confusing concept. Uh, James White has an excellent book on it. If anybody wants to borrow it, I've got it. It's helpful. I can loan it to you. Um, but I found something kind of old in the Athanasian Creed that is helpful. And I wanted to read that. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. But it is, it is helpful in our understanding of the Trinity. And it says, We worship one God in Trinity and trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. 
As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. And in this trinity is none before or after another. None is greater or lesser than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as foresaid, the unity in trinity and trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore will be saved. Let him think of the trinity. So, if we think about I think, especially in, in the context of the Baptist uh, belief, sometimes the the Holy Spirit is sort of left out of the picture or is diminished. Or perhaps we have some fear of the Holy Spirit because things, uh, when dealing with the Holy Spirit, can, can be uh, concerning. When the Spirit moves in your life, when things... Uh, happen internally that you don't understand or when you see things happen externally that are are attributed to the act of the spirit it's strange to us we we have interpretation of the word of god through the spirit we our our prayers our groanings are interpreted to the father by the spirit but i think we tend to as a denomination of baptist diminish the work of the spirit but as, a, as we have discussed today, the Spirit is active in unity among us. I talked about last week about meeting someone on a plane, finding out that they were a Christian, and just the, the, the way we are drawn together. That's the Spirit of God that draws us together. We have unity in Christ because all of us are looking to attain to salvation in Christ. As he died and was raised, our hope is to die and to be raised unto eternal life in glory with Christ as a joint heir. And as it comes to the Father, our desire is to be in the presence of the Father. Heaven for us should not be, my bones aren't going to hurt anymore. I can finally catch up on my to-be-read pile of books and get everything done that I want to do. For us, our joy, the joy of heaven, is to be with the Father. So our, our unity is formed of these seven unities all contained within the Trinity. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So what does that mean for us, Redeeming Grace Fellowship? What does it mean for us to, to think on these things? And, and I thought about it kind of in this way. Um, as God's children, we ought to be eager to be united. I always hated to see my children fight. It happened, always happens, but they're one blood. You know, they are, they are together. They're under one household. We kind of have one mission as a family. We're one family. But inevitably, they would fight. They would fight one another, sometimes viciously. And if it hurts me the way that it does to see my children at odds with one another, how much more is disagreeable is it for the father to see his children bought with the blood of his son 
at odds and, and, and fighting. So that was, that was something that I've been thinking about all week. Um, imagine how much more God hates to see dissension among his elect. So for us to have, for redeeming grace, for us to, to have peace among other believers, we have to practice being peacemakers. And we start that in our own lives. We start that in our families. We start that in our own church. Um, we aren't to pretend to have peace when we're at odds with others. I think last week we were in, in Ezekiel where uh, God, had, through Ezekiel, admonished the priests, you say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Well, it's, it's not good for us to do that. It's not good for us to pretend that everything is okay. If you have uh, an issue with your brother, you leave your sacrifice, right? So it is. it behooves us as peacemakers to go one to another to confess our, our disunity and to strive to make amends. It's helpful for us as Christians to understand that we all are sinful. We all um, are prideful. But we can't afford to be prideful if we're going to be peacemakers. And I think one of the problems that we have is standing up for ourselves is ingrained in us. It's an American thing. It's a Western thing. Um, and the idea of allowing someone to offend us and not to retaliate is foreign. Um, I think of uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 538 through 40. But you've heard, it, uh, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And this isn't a call to just let people walk all over you, but it is, it is, a, it is a type of humility that I really struggle with. I feel like I'm owed respect, that, I, that the world owes me a fair treatment, that justice in, from the world, I deserve that. I have that right. I feel that, and I walk around with a chip on my shoulder, daring somebody to knock it off. That's, that's ingrained in me, and that's in my sinful nature. But then I read of Jesus. I read in Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 8. We're all familiar with this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Having this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do I attain to the type of humility that allows me to serve people that I disagree with? How do I, how do I have the type of humility that allows me to um, allow people to say offensive things to me and not seek retribution, not seek have, to have harm heaped on them? Often, it's easy for me to think of the verse that says to, to pray heaps of coals on their head, you know, because I'm like, yeah, heaps, can, I, can that happen right now? 
but that's not the spirit of that. The spirit of that is is that vengeance is the Lord's, and no no wrong will be repaid. No wrong will go by without being paid. There aren't people who do things that are guilty of crimes that are against God that will not be that, that they will not be paid for. Perhaps your sin has been has been paid for Christ on Calvary. But make no mistake, it is paid nonetheless. When we as Christians knowingly and willfully sin against God, we're crucifying Jesus all over again. So how do we, how do we attain the, to this humility? There are a couple passages in Romans that I want to read. Romans 14, 19 being one of them. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue... What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? Back in chapter 2, or verse 2, we talked about, or 3, we talked about being eager. And that is a, the, another translation for being eager is to make haste. We need to hasten to do things. I also mentioned that this unity was initiated and advanced and sustained by God, but we are to work in it. We are, we have a, an active role. We, we don't say, que sera, sera. We, we step in and we do. And by this doing, by this effort of making peace, God works in us. God works out our desire for our own kingdom to come. And he shows us that, and he helps us to put that to death, but he works into us his spirit, his gentleness. Romans twelve eighteen, which we all are familiar with, I'm assuming. Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Probably... Um, it, one of the things that when we lived in South Dakota, the typical mindset there, they were very conservative people, but it, the idea was you handle your stuff, stay out of my stuff, and we'll get along just fine. And the problem with that is you leave a lot of people hurting. There are a lot of people that, that it's easy in that way to say, well, <laughs> they've got problems because they got problems. They made their bed, now they're laying in it. And in doing so, we fail to take the peace of God to people. So we have to strive. We have to be eager to live a life worthy of this call of unity. God desires it. All of the Trinity works it out in our lives. So why is it hard? Because of sin. Our sin. In our hearts, we desire to be king. Even though we confess Jesus with our mouth, our sinful nature still is, puts us at odds with others, particularly others who believe and think differently than we do. So my exhortation for us as we, as we go forward, thinking about this call, being worthy of this call that's put on our lives, is how do we actively work to live at peace with other brothers and sisters in Christ? 
particularly people who think differently? How do we learn to engage with people who have different thoughts and beliefs? There used to be a time in our, our, in our culture when you could have a discussion with somebody you disagreed with and, and it would be okay. You would shake hands and you would, you would still love each other when it was done. Now we draw lines in the sand and there are lines everywhere. If you don't believe me, go out on the internet, type something that you believe into the search bar and you'll find a lot of people who are willing to, to take you to task from the safety of their computer over whatever it is that you believe that they believe differently. So my exhortation is for us to become peacemakers. I think Ken Sandy has a book called Peacemakers that, that's, that's good and scriptural, and, and it teaches us that at the heart of um, our desire not to have peace is sin. But we are to pursue peace one with another. This is when, when, our, when, our, when believers have unity, when we are together, then it is, it is better for the kingdom of God. Not that he doesn't operate without us, but it is better been that his desire is for us to have unity. And when we have unity, he's glorified. And my exhortation for, for those who, who are at disunity with God, which is a bigger issue, is that you think about terms of, of everything that exists. Open your mind and think about this idea. There is a universe that exists that God created everything in it. God sustains everything that's in it. There is a smaller solar system that we live in that spins and rotates around itself and, and, and it's in a very set patterns and stars move. All those things are controlled by God. On a smaller scale, we have a planet and we have oceans that come so far and they stop. We have rocks that crawl up out of the ground to a certain point and they stop. We have a sun that follows a specific pattern. We see the moon. Everything is ordered. All these things are created by God. All these things are initiated by God. But when it comes to the heart of the fallen man, when God says, come, we say no. So if you are outside of Christ, if you are outside of the kingdom of God, you are outside of the natural created order. Sometimes it seems like Christianity is this weird anomaly in our culture, and it's just kind of a, a thing that exists there. But the reality is the truth of God is the truth. Everything else is a false veneer. Everything else that we have, you know, all these different ideologies and all these different principles that, that, that we live on, that are outside of God, that explain away the existence of God, all these things are a falsehood. So if you're living outside of Christ, you're living a falsehood. And many of the objections that I hear people who are not saved say is that they don't want to be a prisoner. They don't want to be, I don't want to have my life restricted and I don't want to be a slave to something. The reality is if you are apart from Christ, you're the slave. 
because you're a slave to sin, you're a slave to evil, and you have no mechanism for escaping it. You can't escape it. In Christ, we're free. In Christ, we're free to choose. We could choose God if we're in Christ. So this unity with God, we're born at disunity with God. My exhortation for anyone today who is outside of, of a relationship of unity with God is to recognize is that our relationship with God, our reconciliation with God is the most important thing of our existence. There is nothing more important that we can do, say, think, none of our desires, none of these things matter if we are not reconciled to God. All the fault is ours. All the recompense is God's. He has come down to us and he has offered his son as a sacrifice. Earlier I said that every misdeed that you do in your life, every, every stray thought, every heinous action that you do will be paid for. There's, God is just. It, it's a part of his character. And it will, it will either be paid for by you as for an eternity in hell, or it was paid for by Christ on the cross. So my exhortation, today is the day of salvation. Repent, be forgiven of your sins, turn from your sins and follow Christ. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we are grateful that your desire is for us to have unity with one another. Father, we're sorry. We apologize that in our sinfulness, our desire is disunity. Our desire is solidarity. Our desire is, is for us to uh, stand alone. And uh, Father, change our hearts. Uh, I pray that we wouldn't be left in a, in a position where it's not important to us to be unified with other believers, where we aren't concerned with being peacemakers and therefore miss out on the blessing that you have for those who are so. Lord, we desire to glorify you, and we know that uh, from your word, that when we live in unity with one another, that you are glorified. So our prayer today, Father, going forward, is that you would instruct our hearts in unity, that you would keep us uh, from desiring our own kingdoms, our own little fiefdoms, our own little cliques and clubs, but that we would uh, be people whose desire is to see uh, unity around the Spirit, around Christ, and around yourself. Lord, we pray for your mercy as we go. And we pray for the strength to not only do the daily things that, that we have, our jobs and caring for our families, but, Father, that our concern, our, our desire would be uh, to be made in the image of your Son. And that would be our priority. And understanding, too, Father, that as we are more made in the image of your Son, that the other things in life fall together. So as we depart, 
I pray for your spirit to be honest, that we wouldn't um, discard this uh, admonishment to have unity, that we wouldn't cast it aside easily, but it would be on our minds in that uh, you would be glorified in our efforts to be peacemakers in our lives. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.